When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm thrilled to have you back for some more time in the Book of Mormon. This week, we're going to be studying Ether chapter 6 through 11. And if you've ever sat down and plowed through 1st and 2nd Kings and or 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you're going to kind of have a sense of some of the material we're going to be plowing through today. What you see in those Old Testament books is king after king, often switching back and forth between a king of Judah and a king of Israel. Some good, most bad, but massive amounts of history with insights being brought out by various kings to see what we should or shouldn't do, whether we should follow their example or not. We'll see the same kinds of things today as we go through a massive amount of Jaredite history. Father to son, sometimes brother and nephew and so on, but lots and lots of kings, some good, some bad with lessons to learn from many of them. And don't worry, there's no quiz at the end of today's session where you have to match the name of a Jaredite king with the events that took place in his reign. I don't think there's angels passing out scantrons and number two pencils on Judgment Day to see if we can regurgitate scriptural trivia. What's most important is that we learn some lessons on how to live our lives, the kinds of sins that must be avoided, and the kinds of solutions that the Lord offers to help us navigate that territory. But before we get into it, I want to tell you a little something about the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now, I grew up in California, and so I'll always be partial to parks like Yosemite or Kings Canyon, Sequoia, the Redwoods. And now that I live in Utah, I've fallen in love with places like Arches and Zion National Park. But when we lived in Tennessee, and I found out that the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was the most visited national park in the United States, I thought, I've got to check that place out. So my wife and I gathered up the kids and we made a trip to East Tennessee to see the Smoky Mountains. They are breathtaking. Well worth the trip. But the irony of that trip is that we learned a kind of parable along the way. Because just outside Smoky Mountains National Park, almost kind of this gateway community as you enter the park, is a place called Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Really cool place. It's kind of a resort town. The only ski resort in Tennessee is there. There's shopping, kind of upscale restaurants and things, art galleries. Feels a little like Park City, if you're more familiar with Utah. So there's the first thing to keep in mind for this parable. The destination that people are coming from all over the country to see is the Great Smoky Mountains. But just outside is a resort town called Gatlinburg. Well, just outside Gatlinburg is another town. Calling it a resort town would be speaking too highly of it. It's called Pigeon Forge. And the closest thing I can compare it to, if you've ever seen the old Disney movie Pinocchio, it's Pleasure Island, where all these unsuspecting little boys are carried off to revel in their hedonism, give in to their natural man, and eventually turn into donkeys along the way. Pigeon Forge is full of go-kart places and arcades and miniature golf, Dollywood, an amusement park is there. And as we pass through Pigeon Forge and then through Gatlinburg on the way to the Great Smoky Mountains, my wife and I realized, whoa, we just went from telestial to terrestrial to celestial. And we wondered how many people 
intent on seeing the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I wonder how many of them stopped short and used up all their money in Gatlinburg. Or even worse, wasted it all in riotous living, to borrow from the parable of the prodigal son, back in Pigeon Forge. And true to that parable, how many of us come to earth intent on completing the journey back to the celestial kingdom, returning home to our Father in heaven, and yet get sidetracked, either in telestial transgressions or terrestrial diversions, and never end up getting to the place we've driven cross-country to see? Now, I'm far from being the first to ask those kinds of questions or draw those kinds of parallels. For the last 300 years or so, one of the most popular books among the reading Christian public is called Pilgrim's Progress. It was written by John Bunyan near the end of the 17th century. If you were a Christian in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, especially if you were a Puritan, and you only owned one book, it would always be the Bible. But if you owned two, your second volume was typically Pilgrim's Progress. And it tells this allegory of the Christian journey back to God. The main character's name is Christian. Bunyan wasn't exactly trying to hide his, his message here. And he goes on this journey to get back to the celestial city. But one of the interesting places he passes through on the way is called Vanity Fair. Now that title should ring some bells for us in our day. There's a magazine called Vanity Fair. There's a clothing store called Vanity Fair. Yes, there's even a Vanity Fair outlet in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And it's shocking that companies in our day have labeled themselves Vanity Fair because John Bunyan did not mean anything positive when he invented that term. You see, a fair is the kind of place you go to have fun, right? To waste your money, to fill your belly, whatever it might be. Pigeon Forge is such a perfect example of it. But in Pilgrim's Progress, it's this city that lies right on the path, the straight and narrow that leads you to the celestial city. It gets in your way. He says, I saw in my dream that when they were got out of the wilderness, they presently saw a town before them, and the name of that town is Vanity. And at the town, there is a fair kept called Vanity Fair. It is kept all the year long. So on your journey to the celestial city, there's no avoiding Vanity Fair. If you're headed to the Smoky Mountains, at least from the north, you cannot avoid Pigeon Forge along the way. But in this journey that Christian is taking, he realizes there's some decisions to make on what to avoid as he passes through Vanity Fair. Now, as I said, the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. And he that will go to the city and yet not be through this town must needs go out of the world. Again, there's no way to avoid it. The prince of princes himself, he's speaking of Jesus now, when here went through this town to his own country, and that upon a fair day too. Yea, and as I think it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, that invited him to buy of his vanities, Yea, would have made him lord of the fair, would he but have done him reverence as he went through the town. Yea, because he was such a person of honor, Beelzebub had him from street to street, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time, that he might, if possible, allure that blessed one to cheapen and buy some of his vanities. But he had no mind to the merchandise, and therefore left the town, without laying out so much as one farthing upon these vanities." This fair, therefore, is an ancient thing of long standing and a very great fair. Now, a lot happens to Christian, our pilgrim, as he passes through Vanity Fair and tries to escape it. 
one of his traveling companions is martyred there, and that he finds another one with whom to escape from these vanities. It's a fascinating book, especially since we're living it here in the 21st century, not just among those Puritan readers that read it before. That is the challenge of consumerism and commercialism, of hedonism and materialism, of worldliness. How do we make it through Vanity Fair and actually get to the celestial city? How do we navigate that road that goes right through Pigeon Forge, literally, and then through Gatlinburg before it finally gets you to your ultimate destination, one of the most beautiful spots on earth? As we study the book of Ether today, how do these Jaredites navigate their voyage, not just to the literal promised land, but to the spiritual one that they sought even after they reached the shore? Because so much of what we'll read today are the negatives that take place at Vanity Fair, thirsting after power and pleasure and prosperity, lust, ambition, greed. These are all the kinds of things that the Jaredites will have to confront and choose either to succumb to them or overcome them with their faith in better things. In the United States of Joseph Smith's day, every early reader of the Book of Mormon was being confronted with those decisions on a daily basis. It was amazing that in early America, European visitors that came to the United States during the 1800s were shocked at how materialistic everyone seemed to be. One visitor said, they look like a race that are selling their lives for gold. Another said, every bee in the hive is actively employed in search of that honey, vulgarly called money. Neither art, science, learning, nor pleasure can seduce them from its pursuit. Alexis de Tocqueville, that famous French observer of America, said, I'm not even aware of a country where the love of money has a larger place in men's hearts. And another observer said that money is the deity to whom all pay adoration. Herman Melville, another famous author from the 19th century, in Moby Dick said this, noting how insane it was for people to work so hard to obtain money when they knew that the love of money was the root of all evil. He said, ah, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. And a 19th century American Protestant minister, Henry Ward Beecher, called consumerism the pursuit of incarnated lies. He said, we that consume are daily in the consumption of lies. We drink lying coffee. We eat lying bread. We patch lying clothes with cheating thread. We perfume ourselves with lying essence. We wet our feet in lying boots. Catch cold, however, truly enough, and are tormented with adulterated drugs. Such an interesting thing to consider. Are we spending our livelihoods on lying things? Products and pursuits that deceive us into thinking they will bring true happiness when they can't. As we watch the steady decline of Jaredite civilization during these chapters, today we will go from the very beginning with Jared and his brother to the very end with Ether. Next week we'll see Ether's ministry unfold, but he's the last person we'll meet today. And the road that we will follow is the road through Vanity Fair. It's pigeon forged today. And people falling into revolt and rebellion to secret combinations, which will occupy a lot of our attention today, all in pursuit of the same three great temptations that Jesus himself completely ignored in the wilderness as he walked the straight and narrow path through Vanity Fair with blinders on. Ignoring the lusts of the flesh, those physical appetites that are satisfied, or so we think, with the sins and sensuality that the adversary 
bombards us with everywhere we look. The casting himself from the temple to satisfy the sin of pride, to show people how important he was and the power that he had. And then the third temptation, to worship Satan in return for all the kingdoms of the world. Materialism and worldliness there. We have seen this so many times throughout the Book of Mormon. The great and spacious building, the great and abominable church, the wicked Nephites of Jacob's day, King Noah and his people, the people of Ammonihah, the downfall of Nephite civilization in 4th Nephi and Mormon, as we saw in the previous few weeks. And we will see them over and over again today in what we study in the book of Ether. So keep your eye out for it. The Jaredite civilization never makes it to the celestial city. They get caught up in Vanity Fair along the way. But chapter 6 begins with a literal voyage toward the promised land. If you remember last week, chapter 4 and chapter 5 were an interruption of the narrative so that Moroni could talk about the record of the brother of Jared that would eventually come forth and then give some items of instruction to Joseph Smith and the three witnesses of the record that he was producing. If you were to remove 4 and 5 and just read straight from Ether 3 to Ether 6, the story would just progress without a blip. Moroni gives us that sense as he begins. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now I, Moroni, proceed to give the record of Jared and his brother. So we're back where we left off. For it came to pass, after the Lord had prepared the stones which the brother of Jared had carried up into the mount, the brother of Jared came down out of the mount, and he did put forth the stones into the vessels which were prepared, one in each end thereof. And behold, they did give light unto the vessels. To me, it's interesting the word that was used there in verse 2. The Lord prepared the stones. He prepared them. What exactly does that mean? Preparation seems to suggest something happening before the actual event. Were they shining when the brother Jared brought them down the mountain? Honestly, I don't know. In fact, we completely lose sight of the stones the moment we see the finger part the veil back in chapter 3. At least that was the case for the brother Jared and for Moroni who is recording these things or abridging them. Back in chapter 3, it says, where are we, verse 6, that the Lord stretched forth his finger and touched the stones one by one with his finger. But the moment he says that, we're not even worried about the stones anymore. The brother of Jared is fixated on that finger. And then he has this incredible experience as the veil parts completely. And he sees the Lord. Then he sees all things. Are the stones already glowing? Do they begin to illuminate the moment the Lord touches them with his finger? The text actually doesn't say. All we know by the time we get on with the story in chapter 6 is that the Lord, having touched them, had prepared the stones. We know that they give light unto the vessels, but were they already illuminated on the trip down the mountain? No clue. Or was this a matter of faith for the brother of Jared to continue exercising? Do we sometimes falter in our faith between promise and fulfillment? Or do we trust the Lord's promises? He touched them. I'm sure they will shine when they need to. And so they did. In verse 3, the Lord caused stones to shine in darkness, to give light unto men, women, and children, that they might not cross the great waters in darkness. Now, these stones are literal in this story, but they could represent so many different things. Like I talked about last week, about this first family home evening lesson my wife and I had. As we are trying to create a home that was tight like unto a dish, that could keep the worldly sin and influence out of it, we began to see ourselves as these stones. Mere rocks, that's all we felt like, especially once the children began to join the family. Do we have any idea what we're doing? We didn't feel like we did. But knowing that if the Lord could touch us with His Spirit, 
could point with his finger the direction that we should go than the two of us. A couple of rocks with no experience in this all-important task could still shine. I love that two stones were placed within each vessel, one at each end, to provide light to all that were inside. Now, as we make our mortal voyage towards the celestial promised land, not every barge has two shining stones within them. World War II destroyed my grandpa, and when he came home, he thought it would be better for the family to just leave them. And he divorced my grandma and left her to raise my mom and my aunt and my uncle by herself. That barge, which they did everything they could to keep tight like unto a dish, only had one stone inside, but it was a brilliant one, enough to light the way for that sweet family along their journey. So whether your barge has one stone or two, they can shine if we allow the Lord to touch them, to touch us and give us his light. Now, if we allow these stones to stand as a metaphor, parents is only one possible interpretation. There are so many things that are mere rocks, but the moment the Lord touches them, they can give us sight. And in fact, considering this is a miracle from start to finish, the rocks themselves weren't even necessary. If the Lord can miraculously make stones shine, couldn't he just make the wood inside brilliant? Couldn't he devise some other way so that the barges could be illuminated from within? Why do we need rocks to begin with? Remember, it was the brother of Jared's idea. And in some ways, this was the best I can come up with. I can't imagine light being able to come in any other way. So would you touch these stones? We know that you can make them shine. It's amazing how often the Lord is willing to give us training wheels, for lack of a better word, to help us focus our faith in something tangible when we can't see him. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, were stones that God touched with his finger. And the light of justice, of truth, of righteousness, shone through them to the people of Israel. So mere tablets of stone, if you're Moses, mere plates of metal, if you're Nephi, mere clay and spittle, if you're the blind man and Jesus anoints your eyes and tells you to wash in the pool of Siloam. He didn't need to do any of that. But for the blind man's sake, wanting him to sense, to feel that something was happening to him. I've often asked my students, which of those elements actually gave sight to the blind? Was it the clay? Was it the spit? Was it the water from Siloam? Correct answer, none of the above. It was the power of God. But thankfully, recognizing our weakness, the Lord often gives us something physical, something tangible to help us focus our faith. The staff of Moses, the liahona, the brazen serpent, the seer stone that Joseph used to translate the Book of Mormon, consecrated oil that we use in priesthood blessings, bread and water in the sacrament, the temple garment, even more worldly things like a wedding ring or a tassel and mortar board on graduation. We have these rites of passage. We have these tangible objects that help us recognize that something is happening or has happened to us. An outer object that marks an inner reality. If they are mere training wheels, I am grateful the Lord puts them on my bike because I'm not very good at balance yet. Call them crutches to faith? Fine. There are times my faith needs those kinds of crutches. Scoff at seer stones if you choose. 
but I am grateful that the Lord touches stones to allow us to see things we otherwise wouldn't. And sometimes the rock he chooses to illuminate is you or me. Those kinds of blessings are intended for everyone. As he says in the middle of verse 3, they gave light to men, to women, to children, because everyone could benefit. And as he says at the end of the verse, how did they benefit? They did not cross the great waters in darkness. Now they could have. The brother of Jared admitted earlier that he was willing to submit to that reality if it was the will of God, but he hoped that it wasn't. And the merciful Lord blessed him beyond the bare minimum. You will have light along the way. That light will give you confidence. It will reassure you. It will protect you and increase your safety. It will allow you to more fully connect with one another within the darkness of the deep. There's actually a beautiful phrase in Ezra chapter 9, verse 8, where he prays in gratitude, Now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape, to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. You sense that's all that Ezra is asking for, but so grateful that the Lord would give it in his generosity. Just some grace within this little space that we've been granted. A remnant to escape, even if we don't all escape together. Just a nail, just something to hang our hopes on in that holy place. A blessing that God would lighten their eyes and give them a little reviving in their bondage. You want to talk about feeling trapped, claustrophobic in this submarine vessel that they'd made. There is something alarming about being in pitch black. Even when you know you're totally safe, there's just some reviving in our bondage. There's some reassurance in our claustrophobia. There's light for our eyes. And that light, God provides us miraculously. Now, in verse 4, they did all they could on their end. They prepared all manner of food that there might, they might subsist upon the water for themselves as well as for their livestock. And then at the end of verse 4, And they set forth into the sea, commending themselves unto the Lord their God. I love how that verse begins and ends. They need to come together. Some of us are really good at doing the first and not very good at doing the last. We think it's all on us. We work as if we were atheists. We prepare every needful thing. We take the responsibility and make sure that we've covered everything. But never get around to commending ourselves unto the Lord. We never ask for his help. And sometimes, even after all that homework, we never actually launch forth into the sea. Because how confident can I really be in my man-made efforts? Others of us only want to do the end of the verse and don't want to do the beginning. We trust in God, so we commend ourselves unto him but we haven't really made sure that the barges are seaworthy to start. Remember how the Lord chastised Oliver Cowdery. You took no thought save it was to ask me? Come on, Oliver. You've got some homework to do. You study it out in your mind. You prepare all manner of food. We need to strike that balance to work like atheists and to pray like saints, to pay the price of preparation, but also to commend ourselves unto the Lord, recognizing that no amount of homework that we could do on our own will be sufficient. There will always be a leap of faith as we launch out into the water. But that faith can be fortified 
by the works that we accomplish in advance. Now in verse 5, now that they're in the water, the Lord God caused that there should be a furious wind blow upon the face of the waters. Now we should have seen that coming, right? We saw that at the end of chapter 2. The winds have gone forth out of my mouth. The rains and the floods have I sent forth. And those winds were furious. This was no easy trip. Yet notice this detail about the wind. It blew towards the promised land. And that always seems to be the case with the kind of redemptive turbulence, as Elder Maxwell called it, that the Lord often sends into our lives. In fact, that's one of the ways you can tell that that turbulence is meant to be redemptive, that the trials came from the Lord instead of just self-inflicted wounds because they move us forward along the path. We talked about that last week, that we come to know God in our extremities. They certainly would. They would have to know that it was by the Lord that they were led. He was preparing them against these things. The wind was furious, but it was moving them in the right direction. The early saints faced all kinds of wind, but the wind blew them forward, not back. Adversity helps us achieve some of those purposes of mortality. I've often joked with my students that it would be really hard to become a bodybuilder if you lived in outer space. There's no gravity. There's no weight to push against you that allows you to push against it. And some of that resistance that life provides is exactly what we need to build faith the muscle that is required of us here. That actually helps explain an interesting statement that President Boyd K. Packer once made, that there is more equality in our trials than we realize, and that sometimes the hardest trial is the apparent absence of any. Wait, wait, the hardest trial is the absence of trial? Well, sign me up for that difficulty. But think about it. If the purpose of life is to help us come to know God, and we come to know Him in our extremities, then imagine a life without the kinds of things that point us to Him. Imagine crossing the ocean with no wind pushing you forward, no wind forming currents to carry you along. To choose to bow before God when circumstances do not bring you to your knees. With an eternal perspective, I hope we can express gratitude for the howling and furious winds recognizing that they are blowing us towards the promised land, not away from it. Verse 5 ends by admitting that they were tossed upon the waves of the sea before the wind. And 6, it seems like it gets even worse. They were many times buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke upon them, and also the great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind. Yet more redemptive turbulence. Now, they've been warned of that as well. That's why no windows. That's why tight like unto a dish, both on bottom and on top. But what amazes me here is that what seems like the greatest difficulty, being buried in the depths of the sea, was actually a beautiful blessing in disguise. Growing up in Southern California, I loved going to the beach. And raising my own children, landlocked, it's always been fun to take them to the ocean and watch them try to grapple with the waves. It can be a scary thing when you're a little kid and you see a mountain wave about to crash upon you until someone tells you the secret that never would have crossed my mind otherwise. That the answer is not to get above and over that wave. It's to dive beneath it. It's an incredible thing to feel the surf crash above you as you are underneath, safely out of reach, 
of those waves. Once my children began to understand that and to dive under the wave and come up on the other side behind it, once they understood that principle, they were never so scared of the waves. The Lord has so many ways to help us navigate stormy seas. There are times that he's on the boat with us and simply commands, peace, be still. There are other times he helps us walk upon the waters. And there are others where he is willing to descend below all things with us, allowing the mountain waves to crash overhead where we are safely beneath them. In verse 7, they are reassured that when they were buried in the deep, there was no water that could hurt them, their vessels being tight like unto a dish, and also they were tight like unto the ark of Noah. We talked about that last week too. Pitched within and without with pitch, or to use the Hebrew more literally, covered within and without with a covering, atoned for. No one can keep the water out of our lives like Jesus can. Therefore, when they were encompassed about by many waters, what did they do? They cried unto the Lord, and he did bring them forth again upon the top of the waters. He's down there with you, descending below all things. Of course, he can lift you up above them. That's what a condescending Christ does. That's the meaning of Jared, to go down. And in verse 8, we see it again. It came to pass that the wind did never cease to blow but it always blew towards the promised land. No wonder in verse 9, they sing praises unto the Lord. Yea, the brother of Jared did sing praises unto the Lord, and he did thank and praise the Lord all the day long, at times when the hole could be open and the light of the stones was not quite so necessary, and when the night came, and those miraculous stones were the only source of illumination they had. Either way, they did not cease to praise the Lord. I need thee every hour in joy and pain, in daytime and in dark, above the water, beneath the water, everything in between. And in all those hours that I need him, he is there. No wonder we never cease to praise him. At least we shouldn't. Compare this to Laman and Lemuel on their cross-ocean voyage. They were really well behaved for the first little while. I would be too if I was scared to death standing on a ship that my little brother had made with his own hands. Nephi the landlubber growing up in landlocked Jerusalem. I'm really getting on board this thing? Oh boy. Even if I'm layman, I'm praying like I've never prayed before. But once the journey keeps going long enough and it seems to be smooth sailing, and that's all it was, was sailing. I'm never underwater in Nephi's boat. No wonder they got to a point where they were singing, but not singing praises. And life above deck got a little more riotous than reverent. The story is very different for these that were within their barges, often buried in the depths of the sea. Verse 10, thus they were driven forth, and no monster of the sea could break them, neither whale that could mar them. Of course the whales didn't mar them, they were one of them for all intents and purposes. Remember, that's what the Lord said back in the earlier chapter. You'll be like a whale in the midst of the sea. I even wondered, in spite of the fact these barges were described as light and small, they must have been fairly large to be able to fit these families and their livestock, their provisions, all that they had used to prepare. I just wonder if these comparisons to whales is more parallel than we realize. 
down in the depths, come back up for air. Similar size, perhaps. No wonder the whales could not mar them. They were just as big. If I'm a whale, I don't want to mess with that. And I wonder, do we realize that we are bigger than our problems? Do we realize that as long as the Lord is on board the boat with us, then no monster of the sea can break us, no whale can mar us? With the grace of God, we are bigger than we realize. We're bigger than our problems, bigger than our challenges. We can outlive and outlast them. We can face them with faith. More than survive, we can endure it well and be exalted on high. It's exactly what this group is doing in these vessels. And for 344 days, it says in verse 11, they were driven forth until they reached the promised land. Verse 12, they did land upon the shore of the promised land. And when they had set their feet upon the shores of the promised land, they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land, just like they'd been doing for the previous year on ship, and did humble themselves before the Lord, just like they'd been doing, and did shed tears of joy before the Lord because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. I testify we will feel that way someday when we arrive when we reach the shores of that promised land. Tears of joy, songs of praise, bent knees, humble hearts, a complete recognition of the multitude of tender mercies that have brought us through. They had light within their vessels, but had no real concept of everything that lay outside them. I don't think we have a clue regarding everything the Lord has saved us from prepared us against, carried us through. Someday we will emerge from our claustrophobic perspective on things, and we will be flooded with the light of realization of just how tender the Lord's mercies have been. And if we will shed tears of joy then, perhaps we can spare a few in advance, recognizing the Lord's hand in our lives. As we'll see in the rest of today's chapters, Every time that their descendants reflected back on this event, it helped ground them again in the gospel. The more they remembered, the more they repented. And the tighter they held on to these stories, the tighter they held the hand of God. Now, as we saw last week, the promised land is only promised if we keep our promises to God. There's work to be done here. The promised land was now their location. But was it their lifestyle yet? We'll see. In verse 13, it came to pass that they went forth upon the face of the land and began to till the earth. There's still work to be done. So let's roll up our sleeves and get at it. They have sons and daughters, their numbers multiply, and by verse 17, they are taught to walk humbly before the Lord. And as a result, they were also taught from on high. We were humble on the boats. Can we still be humble on the land? We trusted in God when we knew we needed him. Are we still trusting him now? As we humbly approach the Lord, we will be taught, not just of him, but by him, taught from on high. Now, there's a piece of me that wishes that the story ended here, with Jared and his brother and their families having arrived at the promised land, multiplying and waxing strong in the land. But this is just the beginning of Jaredite history. And what we will see unfold from here on out is full of so many difficulties that come when people stopped humbling themselves before the Lord, stopped being taught from on high. This is where they start passing through Vanity Fair. 
Now what happens to the remainder of chapter 6 of Ether? Jared and his brother are nearing the end of their lives. They know they're about to die. And so they decide, let's gather the people and number them and give them whatever it is that they ask for. Our final blessing. Unfortunately, their desire in verse 22 is that they should anoint one of their sons to be a king over them. Now, for students of Old Testament history, we realize why this is bad news. This should remind us of the story of Samuel when it's the reign of the judges and he is a prophet leading the people and the people finally say, we just want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king so we can be like all the other nations. And Samuel realizes, you're rejecting the king of kings in favor of appointing a mortal leader and it will lead to your destruction, which it did. The brother of Jared sees the same possibility. Verse 23 says, it was grievous unto them to both of them, both Jared and his brother. The brother of Jared said unto them, Surely this thing leadeth into captivity. But Jared said unto his brother, Well, suffer them that they may have a king. And he said unto his people, Choose ye out from among our sons a king, even whom ye will. It's interesting that these two brothers seem to be divided in the outcome or their, their final decision they wanted to make. But they both seem to agree in being grieved over their people's desire. You actually get all of this in the Samuel story as well. Samuel is grieved, and so is God, by the people's desire. And it's Samuel that wants to say, absolutely not. This will lead into captivity. Surely it will. And yet, what does the Lord say? He allows it to happen. Suffer them that they may have a king. That is such a difficult balance to strike, especially as parents raising a generation that sometimes wants things that we know aren't in their best interest. If we follow the Samuel principle, the Lord says to Samuel, suffer it to be so. Allow them to have their king. Honor their agency, in other words. They're going to exercise it one way or another. But then he adds this interesting phrase in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, that's the honor the agency part, how be it yet. So before you do that, you've got to do these two things first. How be it yet, first protest solemnly unto them. In other words, let them know how you feel. And that's exactly what the brother of Jared does. I do not think this is a good idea. He protests solemnly. But then the second thing that the Lord tells Samuel, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Help them see the future of this decision. What is the consequence of their choice? And that also is exactly what the brother of Jared does. Surely this thing leadeth into captivity. That's the manner of the king that you will have. Someday, anyway. For the remainder of 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel does exactly that. He protests, he lets them know where he stands, and shows them the manner of what their future will entail. He talks about heavy taxation and the limitation of their freedoms, that it will lead them to trust in the arm of flesh and to end up rejecting God. By the way, all of those things will happen in the chapters we study this week. Keep an eye out for them. Everything that Samuel warned his people about, everything that must have been in the brother of Jared's mind, comes to pass in devastating ways. You get a similar sense from Mosiah chapter 29, when King Mosiah is realizing that kings are not in the best interest of his people. And so he shifts the government to a reign of judges instead, so that people will take more responsibility for their own decisions. He warns them that a lust for power would bring war and contention. He warns them that wicked leaders engender wicked followers. He warns them that a wicked king can't be removed except by much bloodshed and that wicked kings pervert the ways of righteousness. King Noah was exhibit A. 
And if you're looking for exhibit B through Z, all the rest of the alphabet, look no further than the wicked kings of Judah and Israel in the Old Testament and the wicked kings that will proliferate among the Jaredites in the chapters that follow. Now the sons of Jared and the sons of the brother of Jared all seem to kind of have this same sense. They realize that I think dad and uncle are right on this. And they seem grieved by the decision as well because they all refuse. They originally tag the firstborn of the brother of Jared. His name is Pagag and they want him to be king. But he refuses. I don't want to do it. I trust my father on this one. And in the middle of verse 25, the people end up wanting his father to constrain him which is so ironic. It's like, guys, we're honoring your agency. Why can't you honor his? So often it's not enough for people to demand that they have it their way, but they want everyone else to follow their way as well. Thank you for honoring my agency. Now allow me to take away yours. No, no, no. We're going to honor agency all the ways around. Well, Pagag refuses. All of his brothers refuse. All of his cousins refuse, except one. In verse 27, all save it were one of Jared's sons refused the throne. But one, his name was Orihah, acquiesced and was anointed to be king over the people. The rest of the chapter briefly then describes his reign. And it was a good one, which is so merciful of the Lord, speaking of the multitude of his tender mercies. He does the same thing with Samuel. I know they've rejected me, but it wasn't sour grapes and it wasn't, well, fine. They rejected me, I'm going to destroy them. You want a king? Fine, I'll give you the worst possible one. No, the Lord chose the best possible one. Someone who stood literally head and shoulders above the rest. Saul, who began his reign as a righteous king. He just didn't end it that way. This was no, I told you so, neener, neener on the part of God. This was, okay, if that's your will, then I'll do everything within my power to soften the potential negatives. I still love you. I'll still bless you. I'll still be merciful to you. But I cannot save you from every negative consequence of your negative decisions. Like I said, the reign of Orihah begins beautifully well. Verse 28, the people begin to prosper. They become exceedingly rich. 29, Jared and his brother have passed on, but in verse 30, Orihah walks humbly before the Lord, remembers how great things the Lord had done for his father, and taught his people how great things the Lord had done for their fathers. Chapter 6 ends with a beautiful summary of all that went before. Orihah walked humbly in the promised land because his fathers had walked humbly all the way from the Tower of Babel. He taught his people the great things that God had done for his ancestors just as his ancestors were taught from on high themselves. In chapter 7, verse 1, Orihah executes judgment upon the land in righteousness all his days, and those days are exceedingly many. You can almost get a sense from among certain Jaredites, perhaps, almost looking back at Jared and the, his brother's concerns, going, see, those were totally unfounded. We were fine. Choosing a king was a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But remember, Sometimes the distance between choice and consequence is a long, long way. Eventually, everything that Jared and his brother worried about came to pass. Surely, having a king did lead them to captivity, and it didn't take very long. It actually reminds me of the story in Acts chapter 27 of Paul on this ship voyage. Before they even set sail, Paul warned them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. But they didn't listen to him. 
Well, what's he know? They listen to the master and the owner of the ship. Surely he understands currents and sailing conditions better than this tent maker from Tarsus. And beyond that, the haven that they were in for the winter was not commodious to winter in. You ever had that sense? Somebody warning you, this is where we need to stay, spiritually speaking. You're like, ah, it's just not commodious. It's not comfortable. I can't do everything that I want to do. And what's the worst that could happen? So we launch out. It's the Mediterranean. I mean, you've seen it on the map. It's pretty small, right? We can make landfall and be fine. And then this really interesting detail in Acts 27. It says that the south wind blew softly. So they supposed that they had obtained their purpose. Like, see, it's fine. Nothing bad is going to happen. Paul, just go rest beneath deck. Everything's going to be fine. Feel that south wind? It's just going to gently bring us to our destination. No problem. Your fears are unfounded. Well, read the rest of Acts 27. That ship was destroyed, and those on board it were lucky to escape with their lives. It was all Paul could do not to say, I told you so. In fact, he did kind of say, I told you so, because he had. So had the brother of Jared. Just give it time. Recognize that God does vindicate the prophets and that we do eventually pay the piper no matter how softly the south wind happens to be blowing. Heading down a wrong direction may seem totally fine at the start. It just doesn't end well, and it certainly doesn't for the Jaredites. Now, for much of this, I want to simply summarize things. And then we can pinpoint principles once we find them in the various verses. You go from Ariha to his son Kib to his grandson Korahor. And Korahor rebels against his father, separates and dwells in the land of Nehor, begets sons and daughters, and his people become exceedingly fair. Wherefore, Korahor drew away many people after him. Interesting the names, by the way. Korahor and Nehor, we should recognize those from earlier in the Book of Mormon which is later in history than this. I don't know if those names were intentionally echoed later in history, but to see Korahor as someone who rebels and Nehor as a place where they go to be away from the people of God. Sound like Korahor the Antichrist? Sound like the order of Nehors that pops up at the beginning of Alma? Perhaps they were taking those names advisedly. Since both of those characters do show up after King Mosiah has translated the records of the Jaredites. I don't know, just a thought. But one principle that I think does apply regardless is this idea of a group becoming exceedingly fair, almost vanity fair, to the point that people are drawn away to follow them. We'll see that several times in this material. Are we caught up in those outward kinds of things? Fame or fortune or fun? beauty, whatever it might be, just that charisma in a worldly way, drawing us away from the things of God. By verse 5, he'd gathered together an army. He came up to the land where the king dwelt and took him captive. Yes, this is his father. Thus it brought to pass the saying of the brother of Jared that they would be brought into captivity. This didn't even last three generations. The brother of Jared would have to say his, I told you so, from the grave. Now, verse 6 gives us, I think, a piece of literary foreshadowing, which is interesting. Verse 6, Now the land of Moron, where the king dwelt, was near the land which is called Desolation by the Nephites. Now, remember the Nephites called it Desolation because it bore the marks of a civilization that had been completely destroyed. 
this very first rebellion took them in the direction of desolation. It pointed them towards that eventual demise. And that's what always happens when we leave the straight and narrow path. This is so early on in history. And we'll see by the end of this chapter that it gets resolved. It's okay, it's fine. But those first missteps so often get us closer to desolation than we realize. We're nearer our own destruction than we think. We've got to return, repent, to get back to the straight and narrow path. Now in verse 7 through 9, that rebel, Korahor, he's attacked and defeated by his own brother, Shul, another one of Orihah's grandsons, who then restores the kingdom to his father, Kib. Again, don't worry about the names. There's no quiz at the end. But even in this brief passage, you see a son against a father, a brother against a brother. We're starting to see conflict within immediate families. But when all is said and done, it's, it's resolved. It comes back together. Verse 10, the father rewards the righteous son. Shul is given the kingdom. He begins to reign in the stead of his father. And good news, verse 11, it came to pass that he did execute judgment in righteousness. And prosperity results. His kingdom spreads upon all the face of the land. The people become exceedingly numerous. And best of all, verse 13, Korahor, this rebel brother, repents of the many evils which he had done and is even granted some degree of power in the kingdom of his brother Shul. Sounds a lot like the prodigal son. And in this case, the brother isn't outside whining and withholding the, the ring and the, and the robe and the fatted calf, but rather, no, come back in. He that was dead is alive again. Happy ending. Unfortunately, it's not the ending. And so in this next chunk of verses, 14 through 17, Korahor's son Noah rebels against his uncle Shul and against his own father Korahor. You wonder where he learned that trick. In a way, this was like father, like son, unfortunately. He takes his own uncle captive here. And by verse 18, he plans to put his uncle to death. But his cousins, Shul's sons, end up killing him and freeing their father. So now we've gone from a father who rebels and repents to a son who rebels and doesn't repent. Instead, he plots murder and eventually is murdered himself. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland once gave an incredible conference talk called A Prayer for the Children. And in it, he talked about this tendency for one generation to just deviate somewhat and the next generation to deviate even further. An inactive man having an unbelieving son, for example, or an atheistic grandson. Deviations simply building upon themselves. I get a sense of that in this chapter from these generations. Sure enough, verse 19 to 21, the son of that man who rebelled against his father and his uncle, the one who plotted murder and eventually was murdered himself, his son remains divided ever after. He fights against the people of Shul, his own great uncle, and eventually is slain. So it's not just rebellion and then repentance. This is rebellion and permanent division. Things are getting worse. Now, it doesn't have to last forever. In verse 22, that rebel's son... His name is Nimrod, which I think is fascinating, since Nimrod is the name of that mighty hunter back in Babel who built the tower and started this whole problem to begin with. You wonder if Kohor, again, this permanent rebel, is naming his son this for a purpose, looking to the wrong set of ancestors to remember. But just like there were wicked sons, in spite of them having righteous fathers, in this case, this seems to be a righteous son in spite of his wicked father. In verse 22, this son Nimrod gives up the kingdom of Kohor unto Shul. He heals the divide. He returns to the family. 
abdicates the throne that his father had usurped and returns it to its rightful owner. So in Nimrod's case, it's not rebellion and division like his father, but rather repentance and return, like we saw in his grandfather. Again, it's really confusing, really hard to keep all these people straight. And again, don't worry, there's no quiz at the end. But it is fascinating when you have the chance to try to maintain family relationships in here and realize, wow, this really is father against son or uncle against nephew or cousin against cousin. This is crazy. We sometimes think our family reunions are awkward. Nothing like this. And by the time you get to verse 23, we start to see the Lord's solution, and he'll keep repeating it almost every chapter. What is the Lord going to do to try to help bring us back home? Verse 23, in the reign of Shul, there came prophets among the people. They were sent from the Lord. They prophesied that the wickedness and idolatry of the people was bringing a curse upon the land, and they should be destroyed if they did not repent. Keep an eye out for that throughout these chapters. The Lord will continue to send prophets who will cry repentance and warn of destruction that will come if we don't return to the Lord. Unfortunately for them, verse 24, that the people did revile against the prophets and did mock them. We see that dichotomy over and over in the Book of Mormon as well, as well as in church history and in Joseph Smith's own personal history. On the one hand, they revile the prophets as if to try to maximize their perceived affront. And at the same time, they mock the prophets. In other words, to minimize their influence. They either blow it out of proportion up or blow it out of proportion down. To revile, get angry, or to mock and ridicule. Just shrug it off. We see the same thing happening in our day. But Shul has a solution for that. He executes judgment against all those who revile against the prophets. And then in 25, establishes a law throughout all the land that gives power unto the prophets to go whithersoever they would. He's basically establishing religious freedom in the face of persecution. And by this cause, the people were brought unto repentance because prophets were allowed to share their message. Remember the odd beginning to the 11th article of faith. Religious freedom isn't just something we believe in, like the other 12 articles of faith. Religious freedom is something that we actively claim. And in this case, Shul is claiming that for the people of God. There will be no obstruction to the Word of God. Prophets will have free access to the people that desperately need their message. They won't be forced to repent. Agency, again, is being honored. But the prophet's agency is being honored as well. I will not force you to listen, but please do not force me to remain silent. In 26, because the people repent of their iniquities and idolatries, the Lord spares them. They begin again to prosper in the land. And in verse 27, Ether 7 ends the same way Ether 6 did, with remembering. He remembered the great things that the Lord had done for his fathers, and bringing them across the great deep into the promised land. That's why he executed judgment and righteousness all his days. You get a sense of how we overcome evil? We repent, we return, we remember. Now, unfortunately, not everyone does. And those that would rather reject than repent, those that would rather forget than remember, things only tend to get worse. Chapter 7, we started to see conflict within family. We started to see a loss of love and loyalty among family members. Chapter 8 is where we see the rise of secret combinations. 
Here we reach downtown Vanity Fair, where people are being pulled in all kinds of directions towards pride, towards lust, towards greed, ambition, to seek power and get gain. That's what these secret combinations are all about. And that's what chapter 8 is all about.